Welcome to the Great Base Podcast, episode 133. I'm Steve Smith, along with Jacob Hansen. Looking forward to talking to Jacob. He's here with a group of kids from Utah. I think it's a great idea, if it, or maybe you could start there, but uh, bringing the kids in to be ball boys. But Jacob is going to talk about his tennis, tennis background, and what's going to be great is he's going to talk about Peter Burwash, one of our pillars, the great, late Peter Burwash. But Jacob, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Steve. Oh, you're more than welcome. Let's just start with that. It, uh, great idea. You called the Delray Open, and you have some players that you brought in from Utah to be ball kids? Yeah, we've got 14 kids here. Um, yeah, never been to the tournament before, but we figured we were coming here anyway, so we might as well see if they'd take us for the tournament, and they did. So I was telling you, we were talking about that earlier today, the most nervous I've ever been in tennis, the pro tournament with some big-time tennis players. I mean, Jimmy Connors, number one in the world late seventies. And I was in charge of the ball boys, ball, ball girls. And I remember being up in the stadium and the matches were televised. It was a tune up for the U S open and very young ball kids. Your kids are older. The ones that are here, right? Yeah. Mostly 14 to 18. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's good. And we're going to talk later about Peter Burwash. Uh, we first came to on his own nickel to train coaches at Tyler junior college, tennis tech. He pulled me out and he said, uh, all right, Steve, got to see if we can, you can think on your feet and you're going to take the players from the program, the seminar, and train them to be ball kids. But I was already prepared because I had had that experience. But let's get going with your tennis background. Tell us where you got started in this great game of tennis. Yeah, so I started uh, playing when I was about 14. Uh, my grandpa thought I was too slow on the baseball path, so running the bases, so he thought it might speed me up. And a couple of things happened. I ended up falling in love with the game and wanted to play tennis more than I wanted to be on the baseball field. And um, and the other thing is I didn't realize it, but my vision had gone, and all of a sudden I couldn't hit anymore. And so it, went, it took me two years after playing tennis to realize I needed glasses. So I ended up being fortunate because maybe I would have played baseball, and that would have been the end of tennis. So, And where did you grow up? I uh, grew up in Southern California, yeah, Orange County area. So it was a tennis hotbed, but I wasn't, didn't really grow up in it and didn't start playing until I was, you know, 14 and just played high school and a few junior tournaments here and there. But that was, that was really it. But baseball, I remember at one summer telling my mother, asking my mother, I, I like to just shoot pucks in the driveway and I not play baseball. And she said, no, you have to play baseball. It's un-American not to play baseball. I, people used to ask me, do you switch hit? I said, no, I can just shadow swing both ways. I can't hit either way. <laughs> That's got to be one of the toughest things in sport is to hit a baseball. Yeah. I had a, my grandpa played triple A ball. His brother played a few games in the majors. And then I had another, I guess, great uncle that was, uh, I think it was a halfback for UCLA. So we came from a big sporting family and baseball was, was probably the favorite sport. So, so did that help you with your serve? Uh, it did once I really <laughs> fixed a few things in my surf. Isn't that amazing? All these kids years ago, it wasn't fair for girls back in the day. If you played sports, you're called a tomboy. But if you could throw a baseball, you'd take a tennis lesson and you'd be told down together, up together, scratch your back, the trophy look. Yep. Yeah. I didn't have enough coil and I could throw a baseball over 80 miles an hour and I could barely serve that fast. So it was always a disconnect for me. And it was your grandfather who told you you should switch sports? Well, he was trying to get me to move a little faster running, so he thought changing direction might be good for me. And so, yeah, the plan was to play baseball, and I really had this experience where I came out, couldn't hit a fastball, couldn't hit anything in batting practice, 
and it was I was always an all star teams and those kind of things playing, you know, it doing really well in the game and all. It was like something happened and I couldn't hit anymore. So I was like, well, I better go play tennis now. And come to find out about a year or two later, I couldn't see anymore. I needed glasses, wow. so I wore glasses. And I really don't think I would have ever played tennis had that not experience hap- not happened. So, my great uncle Carl, he one time told me, "Hey, the way you practice is something." I'll tell you. He said, "I'll tell you what." You'll go the furthest in this, with this path. He goes, I'll buy you a dozen footballs, and you just go kick field goals all day. He kind of <laughs> gave me the Rudy speech. You know, you're, five, you're going to be five foot nothing, 100 nothing. You should become a field goal kicker. Mm-hmm. But in upstate New York, where I'm from, Gogolax, they uh, came from Hungary, and they ended up in Ogdensburg, New York, and they were the first soccer-style kickers. Okay. They, they became big time. But yeah, I mean, I think of baseball. Um, I think now of tip of uh, pickleball because pickleball is wiffle ball. We yeah. had we had a little baseball diamond in our backyard, and I remember I couldn't hit a wiffle ball. But then they made this big bat as big as a watermelon, so then I could hit a little bit. So how about lessons? Did you start with lessons? Uh, not really. No, I just played high school, and you know, just couldn't afford lessons, and it just wasn't a big sport in our family at that time in terms of just really taking it serious. So really just played through high school and I ended up winning, you know, our league and I, the thing that I could do, I could pitch. So I, right away, I kind of had a palm down type of a serve and could, could kick the ball. And I loved to volley. So I just got the net and that really helped me. So, you know, I did, I did pretty good considering the background and, you know, won a couple league titles and doubles. And, and then it was kind of like, well, I, you know, went off to college and started studying economics, but I just never felt like I was done with the sport. It was a little frustrating because from the back of the court, I always felt like, why am I not, you know, why am I struggling from the back of the court? And so I kind of, kind of just always had an itch. And, um, yeah, it was when I was in college, I was in, uh, Northern California. And one of the, one of the coaches of the local club, um, he just knew I loved tennis and was still kind of working at it. And, he told me, look, if you want to, you know, stay in the game and you want to play more and you want to kind of get better, there's this company called PBI. And so that kind of started my road down Peterborough, Wash International. But, but yeah, that really was kind of my, my formative years wasn't that long, you know, before I was 18. For our listeners, a little trivia. Jacob is the same age as Jack Benny, the late, great Jack Benny comedian. He used to always tell people he was 39. <laughs> to be 39 again. With, um, when was that when you went to work for PBI? Um, just after college. So it was about, I think it was about 20, say 25, 26. And, um, yeah, just this one gentleman told me about it. And then I pulled out their ad out of the back of a tennis magazine and got their phone number and, uh, called up Roger Darone and, you know, just, they told me, well, when you graduate college, give us a call again. And so I did. So Tell us about the interview process. I mean, I, I, went, I didn't go through that, but I remember getting an application because Peter was a headliner. He was one of the, the big names. This would have been uh, in the 70s. Camp Manitowabing and Perry mm-hmm. Sound. I remember having notes. Uh, Dennis McCreevy, who played for Redlands, you know, he, that was one of my first connections. That he had been trained by Peter, Mm-hmm. And for many, many summers, people would go, Perry Sound, the home of Bobby Orr, would go and Peter would train coaches. But 
what a what a guy ahead of his time, pioneer. You know, again, we've talked about it where, you know, people really needed to know Peter Burwash. You know, I think, you know, people will take a name pro like that, someone's accomplished, and sometimes it's sour grapes that they don't um, look for the positives. Not that there's any in, any overwhelming negatives by any means, but the, the interview process, Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I have my stories um, because I had many students who interviewed with Peter or worked for Peter. But go ahead, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, so going into PBI, I didn't know anything about Peter. I mean, so kind of pre- to prepare for the um, the interview process, I, you know, I read a few of his books and I uh, ended up going to a couple different sites just to kind of meet some other pros that were already working for the company and just kind of do some homework going into it. Because I did get the impression that, you know, Peter was, was from reading his books, was pretty intense and serious. So, um, yeah, I think there was maybe seven or eight of us that went, uh, we were at uh, Carmel Valley Ranch, um, the resort there. And so w- we all eight of us showed up and we started off with a, with a group interview and it was, um, yeah, it was just kind of started off unlike anything else. Um, they kind of laid out the day, but it wasn't too long before they started asking us questions. And, you know, Peter asked me, you know, what's one thing you've accomplished or experienced in life that nobody else has. And when you answered, you had to stand up. So I just stood up and thought for about, you know, it was really about 30 seconds to a minute. I just stood there and then I sat back down and Peter said, good answer. <laughs> so like right off the bat, you knew it was going to be a little different. With uh, Peter, certainly his interviews were challenging. Yes. Yeah, there was, um, I think he always wanted to figure out what your, your point, your breaking point was going to be. And he also wanted to see if you could admit to a fault. I think he was always, uh, there was a couple of people in the interview where that, you know, if he would just ask you, what's your, what's your weakness. And if they said, I care too much, that wasn't going to pass. He was going to basically get you to admit a real fault or a flaw in you and see if you could be honest about it and share it in front of other people. And he would not stop until you, you actually got to something that was meaningful. I, not too long ago, I heard from a young coach who talked about, his boss, an old coach, and the old coach, when he's talking to a recruit, a college tennis player, and their parents, he tries to sit down and have them, you know, be at a table, and you know, it's, we're going to talk to the restaurant closes, and just to see their enthusiasm for, you yeah. know, can they hang in there? They start after an hour, they start looking at their watch, and you know, go, <laughs> but it's just going, going, talking about tennis. So Peter definitely would get people exhausted. I always. Yep. I never experienced this, but my students did years ago before the internet. For example, he'd have a letter written in Portuguese. Yeah. He'd give everybody a photocopy. And he would find out there was nobody within the group that could speak, Port- that were, that could speak Portuguese. And he'd say, okay, get this letter translated by tomorrow morning. Yeah. You know, just challenging you to think on your feet. Like, okay, I'm going to go to the restaurant, the waiter, the waitresses, the busboys. I'm going to find someone who can speak Portuguese yep. and, you know, it's so worldly. I don't think anybody, I think a Raven Claussen maybe cause he's been to so many countries in Africa, but, and certainly there's others, but Peter traveled to so many countries. Yeah. But I think, you know, dropping the pencil, seeing if backing up, seeing if people are going to mm-hmm. um, yeah. pick it up. He, he, they would not Peter himself, but Peter's organization, they'd get through, a, when they would come to our college campus, some of them, they would just 
possibly have a very short preliminary interview. Mm-hmm. And then when they did get to meet with Peter, I, don't, I believe for the longest time he was always at the interviews. Yeah, I don't. He was at my interview, and I don't think he missed one for a very long time. And yeah, it was it was an experience. He had three people with him from the company that he brought along to kind of just they were just sitting back, observing, kind of looking at body language, kind of seeing when he pushed our buttons, how we we were reacting and getting their impressions. Um, but we would have a couple of students from the same program go to the same group interview, and he would. You know, one, I remember one student from Singapore going in and being done with Peter. Then a student from Sweden went in and, and Peter said, uh, your classmate told me that you're a drunk. It just like, <laughs> just shock treatment, see how they would respond yeah. to that. Yeah. And then, yeah, after the, the morning session where it was kind of groups and just, we were, we were able to ask questions. So they were kind of seeing the quality of our questions that, that we had for them. But then we went into the play, uh, match play. And so you got matched up to play against somebody, and I, I ended up playing against uh, Arturo Navarro, who I think he played at one of the, the big schools. And I'm here I am pretty insecure about my game with my background and playing against college guys. And I think I, I remember being thrilled. I got four points off of him in a tie break. And we get back from this portion of it, and sure enough, he's like, we don't care who, who got what on those. We were watching the person that we assigned to be the ball boy and the, you know, and so and so, you were supposed to keep score, and you guys were supposed to be, you know, managing the match and and everything. And so it was always he was always they were always putting you in a situation where the least you know, you thought you had the least important job, perhaps as the ball boy. But he was trying to see how seriously you might take it and stuff. So oh, it's so well traveled. I, I think of it being in Japan many times, and it seems like the Japanese have no matter what job they're doing. Say, for example, you pull into a gas station and it's just like it was in the U.S. years ago. There comes two t- attendants come out and they have so much pride for the job. But Peter was very service oriented. Mm-hmm. I think for the listeners who don't know much about Peter Broash, a Canadian, grew up playing ice hockey. But he was a very, very good tennis player. Mm-hmm. He was so acrobatic. and Yeah, flying Canadian. Yeah. with So you got through the interview process. So then there was a the training. The training is 400, it was 450 hours. Yeah. So then, yeah, went through that, finished up the interview. You do a private interview with Peter. I'll just share his first comment to me was when I stepped into this interview, he's like, you don't like me very much, do you? And he said the other, you know, my assistants have been observing and you don't really have positive body language. What's going on? You know, I just kind of wanted to see what I would say. But anyway, so I did, I did make it through that question and yeah. And we got sent to Georgia. I think it's the Lake Oconee outside of Atlanta. And so there was about probably seven or eight of us from, you know, that, that were sent there. And so then you're just 30 straight days with, with the trainees and they they have a few rotating people coming through to do different training on whether it's, you know, coaching or it's programming or whatever it is, obviously PBI specialized, you know, and club and hotel high end type of resorts and things like that. So, you know, you run the gamut every day. It's, you know, there's no breaks or anything and. They really push you, so it was good. We got to go through the different places that you worked or traveled to, just even with their annual annual meeting they had. With you know, certainly the notes I had from the Camp Manitowabin, you know, listening to Peter, like every year he was a headliner at the Roosevelt, New York, and then obviously he prolific, dynamic speaker. 
I mean, I still to this day have these old cassette tapes, audio cassette tapes of Peter, many books. Mm-hmm. But he called me up. He was the first guy who called me up and said, I'm interested because he read, you, you would know, he, he had all, every section, every country. Um, he, he's got every newsletter, every yeah. magazine. And he, he said, I'm very curious of what you're doing. I'd like to come visit you. And he came on his own nickel. And then after that, every year, we had these weekend workshops that were 16 hours, I think four on Friday, eight on Saturday, four on Sunday. And we got to the point where we could give them our own outline. Mm-hmm. But those were, you know, f- we could talk about those. They were just phenomenal training sessions. The, the, the organization, Peter and PBI, helped me so much in, in training coaches. I think so much of that's gone away. I mean, some buzzwords, I mean, one besides service would be professionalism. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the lines I use are 100% Peter Burwash. A tennis pro is one step above a beach bum. Yeah. <laughs> they just show up. Maybe they have sunscreen. They definitely have their sunglasses and their racket, and that's it. Yeah. They're, not, they're not on time. They're not ready to write anything down. They're not looking to do any prep work. It's like, okay, I'll just start feeding balls. Yeah. Yeah, and that was the training. It was very much, I mean, probably less than half of it was on court. Um, just they really went through the idea that, you know, a successful tennis program had to, you had to be able to teach, but you needed to be able to give a, a social outlet to people. And you really needed to um, give a competitive outlet to people to, to have a successful club. So they really kind of went through, you know, all the different facets of, you know, how to, how to really round out your program. It wasn't just going to be on court, but you needed to, if you're at a country club or you're at a hotel, you need to be able to entertain a little bit and, and, and created a social environment. So they were very good at you know, well, working through that. We talked about it briefly. Um, Peter spent some time, I don't know how much, but working with John Gardner. John Gardner at one time had a tennis camp. It was just for senators. Mm-hmm. And to actually worked for John Gardner. He had the camps where you know, it's all, all guys on the staff and they're all, wearing, they're all wearing a blazer. But you go in and you have to know how to play chess, backgammon, bridge, mm-hmm. um, so Peter, certainly, he had his training, but he was very, very young when he set up PBI. Yeah, he was, I think he was a very young man, still in maybe late 20s when he really started the company and, you know, had a few key influences that helped him set it up. But he was, yeah, he wasn't that old to be doing all of this. But I think for the, with the listeners, his energy level, he always seemed like a young guy. Of course, you know, I've, um, I guess you could talk a little bit about how, um, you listened to the podcast that we had on, on that's how you and I met is we have, a, we had a podcast and this was before he passed away mm-hmm. and he had a chance to listen to it. And I remember he had a letter drafted to us and then some key people that had worked for Peter. We were very happy that they had listened to it and, and liked that. But, um, with, um, yeah, the, then you and I have now a connection with having, you haven't studied the, the great base, but with, the 16 uh, hours that we would have, I think we get back to this, the off court, you know, the newsletter, the bulletin board, photography. Why don't you comment on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, well, one of the neatest things um, when you went through training was you got a postcard or a personal letter from every pro in the company. So right off, it kind of set, set this very cool tone when you're in training, you, you got a note from everybody and they were coming from all over the world. So it just made you so excited to get out to your next site, to the site, your first site, really. And, and so right away, they, you know, they just tried to create a culture of, of a family, a tribe. And, 
And so you felt that connectedness, but yeah, we did newsletters usually every, I think it was every quarter. Um, and you just wrote about the things that you were working on at your own site insights that you were having, um, you know, maybe just some different ideas to go about teaching a concept or could just be networking. And so we, we sent those out every, you know, every quarter and, you know, it was just a neat way that you, you're all around the world. You're in, you know, dozens of different countries, but you started to kind of put a face to everybody. So, um, yeah. And then as far as the, the bulletin boards, we would have classes on how to make, make a great bulletin board for your site. So, um, how to, you know, just make it look inviting all of your programming that you wanted to, people to see about how can you, how can you get it out there and make it look, look fun and, and inviting and so forth. So no professional pride the newsletter. I can remember photography. Um, you know, we would just put down like club communications and mm-hmm. you know, we would make an outline, just really 16 topics. And, and it was, you know, PBI really, they, they did it for the good of the game and there would be four, four professionals that would show up in the Tyler junior college campus Mm -hmm. and those training sessions. I still have some of them on, on video. It's just amazing. I remember one policy. You could tell us a little bit about club policy. If you were late, um, you had to pay the company a fine when it, Perhaps it was yeah, a lesson, it was, lesson fee or yeah, something. Yeah, it was $50. So, yeah, they just stressed on time 15 minutes early always. And, you are you know, you had to post your the policy up front so the guests could see it, you know, and those kind of things. So there was some accountability. No, he, the organization did a great job helping us. You know, we always say interview. You know, life is an interview. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as a, as a tennis teacher, you know, you, you're just going to run into people, whether it's in the grocery store, here, there, everywhere. And I, perhaps, okay, I'm on stage. I mean, I have to be able to meet people. I have to be presentable. And, and that was back in the day where um, you either grew a beard or you're clean shaven. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, Peter, you don't want to look like you just came back from a, a three-day binge or a seven-day fishing trip. And yeah. with, but Peter, just the whole organization on, on an interview is that you never just show up. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you write, you always write first. You know, I've had so many people that got jobs because of the training that we got from PBI on mm-hmm. interviews. You know, just simply handwritten thank you note. Mm-hmm. You know, I think those those days have gone away. Yeah. But showing up, and it was much easier for us to to train the the guys versus the gals. But you know, you wear a pair of khaki pants and you wear a light blue shirt, and you take your blue blazer and you have it folded underneath your arm. But you never showed up for an interview wearing a warm up. Yeah. You always showed up dressed like a professional. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, it's just gone away. I mean, yes, young people today, and I don't want to come across like I'm beating up young people, but they don't really even know what a letterhead is. Yeah. You know, in uh, those things we did at Tennis Tech were we'd have a visitor come in, and every visitor would get a thank you letter sent to them. And that... You know, people look back and you know, I just, I took ideas from Peter Borwash and his organization. And that's where, you know, he's one of our pillars. Yeah. The last site that I worked at, we got it because the GM, um, I can't remember how he left the previous, but GMs are always moving from hotel to hotel. And I think uh, he had said that the only people that left him a thank you note upon his departure were our pros. And so sure enough, he ended up at a, at a location with another set of tennis courts and that's how we ended up there. And so, yeah. 
and Peter, again, how he read about the program I was running is um, he wanted all you pros to, if you read anything, he wanted you pros to send that to him. And yeah, yeah, he did clippings or, well, yeah, we were supposed to send in any, any articles or anything off the internet he thought was either funny, he could use it in a slide for a presentation if it was like a comic or just some picture or anything, any article he wanted sent to him. And so you, you just sent off anything you might pique his interest that he could use in a talk or. You know? And my understanding is you, you really, you know, it was like it was going to be pulled out of a hat where you go. You had no choice on where you went, right? Yeah, we, yeah there was no requesting yeah, where you went. Um, so, yeah, I started off in Naples, Florida. And is that at which, such and such hotel, the Ritz-Carlton? Uh, it's the Naples Grand. It was, okay. it was, it's gone through some name changes. Waldorf Astoria, Naples at one point, and Naples. Yeah, I know the, IT, the ITA. I spoke at their convention a few they times. Had their conference and, there a few times, yeah. And it was at a PBI facility. Mm-hmm. With, yeah. Yeah, I remember being in uh, Jakarta, Indonesia, and uh-huh. staying at a Hilton, and it was a, there, there was, I don't know how many, like 25, 30 places around the world. Yeah, I think, yeah, upwards, there's usually about 100 pros, it seemed like, and upwards of somewhere between 30 and 50 sites, just depending on, yeah, when it was. And what about languages? Did you work at any sites where you had to learn a different language? No, I went to Austria a few times for short little periods, but didn't have to. A lot of the pros did, yeah, go learn German or in different different languages and, and so forth. But, yeah, I was always pretty much U.S.-based. With... Um, creativity. Let's talk a little bit about his tennis. He's so dynamic. And then, I mean, one is the traveling show. Yes. Uh, why don't you touch upon that? The PBI traveling show. Well, I've only seen the traveling show at the JW Marriott out in Desert Springs. So they still do a version of it, which is basically a, uh, it's kind of like a little bit of a Harlem Globetrotter entertainment experience while kind of poking fun at the tennis teaching profession a bit and giving some good teaching information. So, but they used to have a really, a serious staff that would train for it and be able to juggle rackets and, you know, hit various shots and they would trick shots, trick shots. Exactly. Yeah. And they would take it around to the U S open and really to China. I mean, they would go everywhere with the show for, for a period of time. No, I, I saw the show in person a couple of times. No, it was really, it was Harlem Globetrotters. Yeah. It was like captivating. With here's a story for you that um, Craig Tyler, who spent a lot of time with us, he spent time, you know, seven years going through a PBI training session. And, you know, also I think, you know, Dennis Vandermeer taking drills from this person, that person. But what Craig did, which was innovative when he was starting college tennis, is they did these PBI type drills. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, some of it from ideas from Dennis, but PBI from the traveling show that how players rotated and this and that. And he would just, it was so dynamic. It would intimidate the opposing team. Yeah. And then when Tyler was at Illinois, a young Ty Tucker, who we had on the podcast, he coaching Ohio state. If people watch how Ohio state warms up, mm-hmm. it actually goes back to the PBI traveling show because, cool. um, Tyler took ideas from PBI Certainly a few others sprinkled in on that. But then he did that, and, you know, the Ohio State warm-up for their tennis team, it's like, whoa. Yeah. yeah these guys are moving and doing these doubles drills, and they're in and out, and it's just high intensity. It's fun. Mm-hmm. With but the creativity as far as tennis teaching, 
um, so many things with, I get, I think it comes back to Peter's training too, to get you to think on your feet where Peter, okay, he's got two rackets and he's going to jog around the court, bouncing the tennis ball up and down with the two rackets. And then he's got to try to do that with two rackets, then tennis ball at their feet. Yeah. Uh, Just creative. Yeah. Um, Good visuals too. Always good visuals. Um, And he made us pros play a lot with, our left hand, every time we'd have an annual meeting, there'd always seem like we would end up with a racket in our opposite hand, just kind of trying to humble us again to remember how hard the game is to learn, I think. Um, but also just, you know. Yeah, sympathy, empathy is like, yeah. okay, you got to put yourself in the other person's shoes, make, mm-hmm. you, make you feel like a beginner. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think the thing that I remember the most from our training was, which we weren't allowed to be near a ball hopper when we ran clinics, which was interesting because it really forced you for, I think for most pros, that's probably a comfort zone is to be attached to the hopper at sometimes. And so he really stressed that, you know, you guys have to learn how to teach tennis without needing to be the one, you know, to, to be running everything from the basket. How can you get, you know, six people, eight people moving and get them engaged and get them learning without, you know, giving them a feed, a feed every time. So there was always just, you know, the creativity somewhat stemmed from him forcing you to get off of, you know, maybe where your comfort zone was teaching. And also too, it was critical of the, the tennis students, one line, cross the baseline. You know, yeah. Again, um, it's amazing how many similarities are among the, the pillars that we have. Like a, a Vic Braden did not like the drill where people are just hitting forehands going across the baseline. Yeah. And it's amazing, oh, hey, the lesson's an hour, and you started with that one basic boring drill the first 20 minutes of every lesson with, um, and Peter, you know, you certainly would make a spoof of that, but also, you know, many times putting your, you sit, you're going to be right in the middle of the court, and there's these big beginners on the other side, and they're hitting balls, and they're hitting the coach. They're going, sorry, sorry. <laughs> but, you know, to feed the ball from the side, and all the different ways to feed the ball, mm-hmm. you know, get get down on one knee and just yeah. just so many dynamic ways on, on feeding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was such a master with a racket too. I remember he would, um, you know, like say kids have five of them, you know, sit on the court, mm-hmm. um, maybe seven, nine of them, but whatever, every position they would feed, then you'd have a pro feed the ball to Peter. And then he'd make it a game where he, the ball would be fed to him and you know, he would know all the players' names and he'd hit the volley right to the person no matter where they were sitting. They're just sitting on the court mm-hmm. and they had to catch it. So the, the kids, okay, the challenge of catching the ball. Um, but you know, I just remember, okay, we're, we're going to do that. So we would have, a, we had a lab of 15 hours a week and we would learn PBI drills and say, okay, we've got to practice these drills. You know, with, um, you know, serving and volleying, you're going to serve, come in, and you're going to split step, but then when you hit the volley, you have to do a double hit on the volley. Yeah. So he brought athleticism into it. Can you keep that racket hit above your wrist? Can you stop the volley? So a double hit on the volley, stop on the forehand side, hit the ball to the backhand side, and just send it over. Very clever. Yeah. Yeah, so many, so many of the things that I took away initially, I think, was just how unaware I was of the racket face. And that's always what kind of stuck with me from working with him from the index finger on the strings you know, it, it really kind of just, it boiled it down to a simple thing and it was kind of shocking how ignorant I was of that kind of going into PBI. With 
Uh, we were talking about Ryan Reedy does an outstanding job uh, with two minute tennis. Mm-hmm. And I know Andy Fitzo will look at it and he knows Vic so well. And um, I do as, do as well. It's just the time I spent with him. You know, Vic did not use the expression racket head awareness. For us, that's a Peter Burwash mm-hmm. expression. So when we hear someone say this or that, he goes, Oh, Braden used to say power X on the serve. And Andy will go, No, he didn't. <laughs> with, um, Serving backwards. Uh, there's many times where it's like we talked to, we dedicated a podcast or two to Doug Ver, to, excuse me, the late Jim Verdick, mm-hmm. team coaching, Redlands. But it was so powerful. We listened to his son, Doug, and we talked about mm-hmm. some things that we learned from Jim. And he said, you know, he didn't do that when I, when I played for him. But do you remember, Peter, having people serve backwards? So I would, yeah, I've heard you mention this on the podcast before. I don't recall this one. So I, I didn't see this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's so true because young kids, when they serve, they want to put their hands out in front. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it's logical intelligent to serve palm up and just patty cake it, have the racket path go straight to the court. But um, teaching emergency shots, that was a the theme of Peter. Yep. Yeah, tennis is a game of emergencies. You know, and so he didn't want people to run back. You know, you know we call it the backfire, the Nastasi Bucharest backfire. And... You know, you you don't turn your shoulders because if you turn to where the tennis court is, you know where the tennis court is, but if you turn now, your shoulders turn and the racket won't go towards the target. But then actually to practice that shot. Mm-hmm. And I remember Peter saying, we don't want anyone to go back and, and then, you know, do this, you know, <laughs> where they have no idea to re, how to retrieve. And, and when, you're, when you're chasing a lob down, many times, you know, we got the teenage showboats that they're going to try a tweener every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you can go back and do the backfire where it's just... If you're right-handed, you're serving over your left side, mm-hmm. but you have to have a continental grip. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, that's the emergency shot. And I, I remember Peter showing up and, and saying, who's got a lousy forehand? And I raised my hand because I started off where one grip sounded mm-hmm. simple. And like everybody in my day, with a lousy grip on the forehand. And, you know, you remember he shifted my hand past the third panel. But... It's true that every shot that's behind you, you you need to play with a continental grip. Mm -hmm. So then with Peter, he had all these drills where you practice the emergency shots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a clinic theme. I remember that we would be told that would be, you could have an entire clinic just based on emergency shots. Every every drill you do started off with an emergency shot and played out from there. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a negative for us is, you know, we... You know, especially through our Braden study, is to get kids hitting the ball really cleanly. That many times on a pyograph, we don't spend enough time on the emergency shots. Yeah. Now, ideas come from ideas. So with Peter, uh, he loved mini tennis. It, yep. We have mini tennis one through five, and one is so you start with the backfire. Okay. You, you Peter Burwash backward serve. And then you do, do double hits, which Burwash did all sorts of the double yeah. hit drills, mm-hmm. not only off volleys, but off ground strokes. Yeah. So this idea that we have, I mean, I have to, you know, go back to evolve from our training with Burwash is, okay, we're going to do mini tennis, five, double hits with a Hollywood twist. <laughs> so the kids stop it, and then they cut the ball, where the ball then bounces behind them. Okay. And then they get to practice, you know, we'll call it the backhand flick, the forehand flick, mm-hmm. Uh, they can do the side tweener mm-hmm. and, they, cool. and they love it. 
but you know, right away, okay, we're going to do double hits. We're going to drop hit balls in the alley. We're going to do partner drills, toss, hit, hold, very mechanical training mm-hmm. because they're working on mechanics. But then the burr wash drills, um, so that that's where that's what I think is um, obviously I'm going to be a little biased over the great base pathway to take ideas from all these people. Yeah, and I did, but I do think that Peter was. Um, very concept driven. Why don't you talk a little bit about like left hand awareness of the yeah. role of the left hand? Yeah, I think PBI felt like you could you could pretty much teach every shot using your left hand. There was some involvement of the left hand, and it really was the left hand was just a way to kind of simplify it and control the racket face because every you know every shot's control you know you're got to be racket face aware, and so that you know you really could use the left hand whether it's you know unit turn on the volley and having the left hand up there to really set the face or whatever it was. So the left hand was just one of the, one of the things we constantly kind of went back to as a, as a company for my own game, kind of not having this, uh, you know, a real teaching background of, of being taught myself. It was for me, it just really helped kind of set the racket angle and just, you know, simplified a lot of my shots and, you know, it, it made me a better player just from the simplicity aspect and, and the racket face awareness. So. No, like in this country, the USTA, the alphabet soup, the PTR, the, the USPTA is to take people who work for PBI and say, let's not lose this. Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's get these ideas on film and training young coaches. I tell people all the time, make it a story. You know, Peter used to say, I haven't said take your racket back since 1964. And, you know, I remember hearing that in the 70s and 80s. But make it a story. I, I, when I hear something that I really like, um, Jim Lair, I want to own that sucker. Repeat it, make it a story. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important to give people credit where credit's due. One, they deserve the credit, but two, say, so-and-so taught me this. Yeah. There, I, This is where I was. Mm-hmm. And not be pretentious that, well, you know, I've, I invented the forehand. With um, Peter was big on um, the triple vision. That would be a concept. Yeah. Yeah, court awareness, ball awareness, and opponent awareness. So yeah, he just didn't. Yeah, think that you could. You know, you had to train yourself to be aware of all three. So create as many drills as you could that really kind of put you in some uncomfortable situations. He like he really liked to have people facing away from the net, and he might say go, and then right as they turn around, they're getting a volley, and they don't know where the opponent's going to be on the other side. Stuff like that that would just really yeah, kind of pull you out of your comfort zone. A Peter Verwash drill was visual acuity, you're going to run around a cone. And as you run around the cone, before you make the turn, you feed the ball. And you think about it, that's a great way to try to have a become a half volley. Mm-hmm. You're know, going yeah. to the net, okay, I'd like to, I don't want a high volley. I'd like to have a medium, perfect contact yeah. volley. The low volley is tougher. And then with the half volley, it's interesting, a lot of kids that are lazy with their feet end up having good half volleys. <laughs> that's true. I always think of... Uh, Bob Lutz, a great, great player. He'd be a little nonchalant coming in, and you know, he's amazing, these pickups that you make at his feet. Mm-hmm. But like, how can I get people to practice that shot? How can I make make that become a reality where they yeah. can do it over and over again? Yeah. Well, with all the mini tennis we did, it always evolved into players being a defensive volley position right on the service line. So a lot of drills started right there, and you know, he would have us feeding right into their feet to – you know, to start off, you know, the movement, whether moving forward and stuff. So great on doubles. Yeah. One, 
to put those two words together, or mini tennis, compound word, I guess, and doubles, Peter would have people play mini tennis doubles in one service box. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and But if you play it in a very dynamic way, it's like not like, okay, you can, with club players, get two games going at once, putting uh, eight players on a court. Mm-hmm. But if they're really good, it, and it's amazing to see the footwork when they're playing in a confined space that yeah. they have to move even more. Mm-hmm. And they hear the, like a basketball floor here, the shoes squeaking with... Um, what else comes to your mind that you'd want to share with about Peter? Um, I mean, I think about just Peter as a person. It was, I think a lot of the pros were intimidated, especially the new pros when you kind of come in and you have that interview process and, and stuff. But I think the thing that you ultimately learn is uh, you can call Peter anytime. We all had his phone number and, you know, it was, he would answer, you know, so he just always was there as in a really active role and a supportive role. And, um, yeah, that, that was a thing. It's like, once you realized how much he cared and was on your side, it, he became a very, um, it became a lot more comfortable. If you avoided Peter, Peter knew it and he would make your life, you know, tough. Um, and he'd, you know, he'd, he'd ask, you know, why haven't you called me or why haven't you done this or that? But if you kind of took some initiative and, you know, Peter, Peter was a great guy in that way that, um, yeah, he really just cared, cared about the company. He knew he was working harder than you were. So, you know, you never felt like he was taking it easy and all the pros were out there just, you know, taking a, you know, teaching lessons so he could make his percentage or something like that. It never, never felt that way. Yeah, no, his energy level, you know, he's the kind of guy that you would just be thinking, this guy does windows and floors. He'll do whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I mean, that was always his kind of the inverted pyramid, you know, where he, he would talk to us about, you know, our jobs to take care of the guests and PBI headquarters job is to, you know, do their best to take care of the pros. And, you know, and it certainly had a, had a family type of aspect to it where you really kind of felt like you were, you know, part of a group or part of a tribe. And that's why I think some people really loved it. And some people didn't care for it because it just, you know, it is kind of one of those things all in or, you're, you're out, you know, you're halfway out the door, you're out the door kind of thing. Yeah. For the CEOs and the presidents to hear that the upside down triangle mm-hmm. is yeah. Put, put the entry level pros at the top and make them feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, he was great. I mean, it just, I was in uh, Napa for the last part when I worked for PBI and he was in Carmel. So there were some opportunities to, to come down and just see him a little bit more than maybe most of the other pros would. And, and stuff and yeah he was just always available and, and willing then, to talk and you actually went to india with him yeah i was really fortunate i um just worked out it was probably one of either his last or second to last trip to india he india was kind of his spiritual home that's kind of how he i think kind of you know saw the world through some some of the spiritual ideas you know in india and um and the probably the neatest thing that he had done there is when, as he had done his travels, he had met a guy who was, um, feeding kids in the slums, just, they were just delivering meals. And he was really impressed with, with this gentleman. And they ended up starting a school, uh, exclusively for girls from the slums. And so he would raise money and go back to India every year and visit and, and kind of check in on them. And, you know, they would, he would help connect them with doctors with, you know, for cataracts, for some of the families, you know, that were connected to the school and stuff. So it was, a really became, it felt like his, one of his big life's missions, you know, 
throughout the years and more and more connected to that. Um, along those lines, uh, obviously Peter was at five-star hotels for the most part, but you know, he's always connected with you know, projects like teaching the blind, teaching wheelchair players, teaching the underprivileged. Why don't you talk about yeah. that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, even going right into the interview, that was one of the things that he would do in the interview is he would blindfold somebody and ask him, to, you know, can you teach them? And you know, we just kind of thought that was an interview technique, but it really was something that he was passionate about, wheelchair, tennis, you know, tennis for the blind. He did prison, you know, taught tennis in the prisons, and um, he always said that that was one of his favorite yeah, I remember saying that. Um, but yeah, just in, in a lot of different areas, you know, it was, I think, you know, PBI's original mission was to bring tennis to, you know, to every town and village. And it's, you know, it's, I guess, tough to do that when you're in some of these exclusive places, but Peter's heart and a lot of the other people in the company really, you know, did do these extra things that were far away from, you know, being at a Ritz Carlton or something like that. And, PBI was connected with a lot of federations. Yeah. I know that, um, I don't know too much about that, but with, you know, I know they were part of connected with India and sometimes with the bat, is it the bat program that was out of there and, and at times and yeah, that's right. Britannica arbitrage tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our students, um, his father was the CEO of Nabisco and I remember, um, him coming into the office, this young guy, he goes, I'm really nervous. I said, what are you nervous about? You've been training for interviews backwards and forwards and upside down. He goes, well, part of my interviews, I'm hitting with Rod Laver. <laughs> and that's right, that Peter was part of that. Basically, that mission was to try to teach the, the families throughout India, how did Mrs. Armitage, who passed away not too long ago, how did, how did she get her three children to be scholarly, worldly, and great tennis players at the same time? With, um, yeah, I think to take uh, the, the core information that we have, you know, basically is from Braden. We always say, okay, Vic Braden is a Christmas tree, and then there's all these other ornaments. But uh, also, you know, Peter Burwash was such a energetic, prolific speaker. Yes. You know, in, in every which way, but, you know, motivating groups. I remember... You know, obviously some self-promotion because he wanted, he loved the Toronto Maple Leafs, he wanted to speak to the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I remember uh, he contacted my brother, mm-hmm. who was the associate GM, but Ken Dryden was uh, not that active as a president GM. And, you know, my brother called up and said, hey, tell me about Peter Burwash. He wants to speak to Toronto Maple Leafs. And I said, 100%, you should do it. But, you know, the hockey guys... I, mean, I think maybe it's, uh, I know it's changed now, but it's like, no, open your doors and <laughs> you just think back in the 80s, you know, this guy's going to show up with his little white tennis shorts talking to these hockey players. But um, you know, Peter would always take his watch off. And something I do all the time is only a couple of you are still listening to me. <laughs> right now, I don't think any of you are listening to me. But Burrow, I should always do that. Yeah. Yeah, he is a great speaker. I mean, we obviously heard him speak at the annual meetings, but. Um, and he would have these, you know, 30 minute or, you know, up to an hour talk and they, he always did them with slides. He always had slides to have some sort of visual, whether it was technical talking about the, you know, the game itself, or he was giving leadership type talks. Um, but really funny slides. Um, I wish, I wish I had some of those cause they were, they really made you laugh and you didn't think of Peter as this funny guy. 
is especially when you started out in the company, but then you got to see him a little bit more and you realize he, okay, he's got a sense of humor. But he's but he, uh, a great showman. Yeah. No, he, it, when he talked at the USPTA conference a couple of times, I was able to watch. I was just, I was thrilled because I didn't feel like people outside of our company got to see, see or hear or realize how dynamic and thoughtful and, and what a great speaker he was. So no, it was, I know he's, he's, he's been in a, a long list of hall of fames, but you know, I just hate to see, you know, Peter Burwash and all his contributions be forgotten. I really think that um, Peter Burwash should be in the international tennis hall of fame. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what he did for tennis uh, initially, you know, I got into tennis in 74 uh, around the clock and, um, but I don't know when it was. It was definitely sometime in the 80s where he he was really um, welcomed with open arms and became a leader mm-hmm. within the USPTA. For the longest time, Bill Tim was really the, vo- the voice of the USPTA. And, and, you know, the organization grew, but they definitely um, had open doors for Peter. Yeah. He was just always a headliner at their conferences. Yeah. No, he was... I mean, that's kind of the thing when I think about the conferences, like our PBI annual meeting was just unbelievable. It was, that was really a great experience, not only just for him speaking, but, um, the headquarters of PBI was really devoted. I mean, when you came to, you know, whatever location, whether it was in Austria or, you know, it was in, you know, out at the Naples Grand or wherever the location was, they just had everything prepared and it was very specific to you. Um, like I can remember one of the, um, meetings they would just have things what are your weaknesses what are we going to address this with this week that we have and for me it was like i had to learn to speak and smile more (laughs) so i had to like practice in front of a camera and i don't know how much better i'm getting at that but um but that was kind of the level of care and thought that went in you felt like went into every single um annual meeting and you know it would might be taking you out on court and working on your own game if they felt like you just needed to be able to demonstrate better and and things like that. And, and the conference or the, the seminars were put on by the fellow pros and, you know, whoever had the best site, whether it was programming or, you know, best at making, you know, contacts for future business development. It was always asking, you know, people within the company to really kind of to, to share their ideas, but then also collaborate within, within the, the group and the seminar itself. Oh, in those training sessions you had very clever. I do this all the time. Give, give a kid, okay, it's got to be a clean joke. You got to tell a clean joke, sing a song, tell a story. Mm-hmm. Say, we're going to do that at lunchtime. And, you know, they just have such a fear. They have stage fright getting in front of a group of people. Yeah. And, you know, come on, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Can't you sing the <laughs> alphabet? I mean, just get through it. You know, yeah. you were like, no, I'm not doing that. And they just, they just and you go, okay, I'm going to get this person to be yeah. on stage, you know, playing for their team and it's going to be three all. No, Andy Fitzell, who um, has done some acting with the acting school. I've done a lot of camps with Andy. He's very, very good at improv and trying to get kids to come out of their shell. Yeah. But Peter was a master of that. Yeah. I mean, one annual meeting, I remember they set up an entire, they had a, a studio set up for all of the pros to, to practice their media skills. <laughs> and they would have the camera rolling and, and they set it up on a live screen. So the rest of the company would be watching your interview. So you knew somebody was going to be really watching when they put you, put you up there on the, the couch to, to have a sit down interview. Now for our listeners, 450 hours of training before you start to work mm-hmm. many, many places. And again, I come across as doom and gloom to be a negative, but actually the truth is negative. Like, you know, no, that, 
we have, what do you mean? We have no orientation. No, you just give the, you hire somebody, they play a little college tennis, you give them a ball basket and say, you go to court 12. Uh, but tell us a little about the annual meeting. That certainly must have cost the company money. I mean, where where was that most of the time? Different cities, different countries? Yeah, different locations. Um, when I was there, it was either in Florida or it was in Austria. So um, Stongelwert, it's uh, out by Kitzbühel. Um, we would fly into Munich, and uh, it's just in the Alps and the prettiest red clay courts you could imagine. Um, yeah, and they would fly all 100 of us into into the annual meeting. And it, it really was, I mean, Culturally, I think for the company, it really kind of glued everybody because you got to put faces, you know, um, to the newsletters you've been reading for, you know, the past year. And there's always, you know, probably eight to 15 new pros that were joining every year. So it was just a way to kind of, yeah, kind of connect everybody. And um, it was just special. One thing that the Great Base, um, we certainly didn't start out with. Um, the organization, the, the long-term vision, but we, we have a network and we should have an annual get-together for sure. Yeah. Um, Dan Obishan was with PBI forever, high-energy guy. And I remember him telling me once about the annual show. I didn't say anything. I do sometimes uh, remain politically correct. I won't say anything here. But he said they were going to have a debate and his job was to study Vic Braden backwards and forwards, read his book, look at his tapes and I'm going, gee, I'd like to have that challenge is <laughs> have Peter question the, the Vic Braden uh, method, but he did that in a very open mind. He wanted to learn mm-hmm. and challenge his coaches. And it was not a matter of saying, well, this is wrong, but let's, let's just take Vic's contributions. Let's try to turn it upside down, inside out mm-hmm. and talk about it and, and put it out there. Like it's a debate. You know, do we agree with this, disagree with this? Mm-hmm. And I know from that training, um, what I would do with the students I trained and people need more and more time to train. You can't be an overnight tennis teacher. So I would debate my students and I would take the side, for example, um, no, you, you uh, never teach someone to change grips. I don't care if they're seven, you teach them to volley with a continental grip from the very beginning. Yeah. And, 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 and just, make it confrontational because when people get out there in the tennis teaching field, it really is confrontational. And I've trained so many people that don't play well mm-hmm. and the macho male ego, you know, some it's amazing. Young, some of these young people come out of college tennis and you know, maybe they didn't even make the lineup. They didn't get their degree and they end up making so much money per hour because they're a glorified hitting partner. Yeah. You know, as we always talk about in boxing, the, the sparring partner wears a helmet and a mouth guard. They don't say anything, but it's overnight. Okay. You can hit the ball and mom and dad are looking for a shortcut and they're, they're going to hire somebody who can bang the ball to their kid. Mm-hmm. It was great that Peter had that playing background and, and he saw way beyond that, mm-hmm. you know, just like so many, like a Welby Van Horn that your, your playing background was just a bonus. Yeah. Oh, I think that's kind of, I have to be grateful because I did, certainly didn't have the background, I think to, to go become, you know, tennis director or head pro at some of the places I did, but you know, they, and they told me that from the beginning, they said, we don't, you don't need to play well. We can teach you how to play. You just need to be teachable, you know, and really, um, be willing to learn. And, and I think they saw that somewhat as a bonus cause they weren't, you know, fighting, um, you know, previous tennis lessons and all that kind of stuff, or you just, your own experience of maybe teaching incorrectly or. So when you got into PBI, they had moved from Honolulu to Houston. Yeah, headquarters? They, yeah, Peter was in Carmel. Um, 
already and and they had already been at in the uh, the woodlands in texas for a little while and, and pbi had a, a no drinking policy the joke was that the, yeah. the pbi pros in honolulu they're all drinking fermented pineapples <laughs> yeah. so also a little bit about that the, yeah i mean it was a strict rule i think I think I think a lot of it came out of Peter's kind of time period, uh, the drug culture of maybe the '60s and the '70s, and Peter wanted to set set the company apart. So, you know, and he just felt like there was a there was a duty to to not be drunk around your students or not, you know, to really just kind of maintain a professional line. And so, I think that's where it, where that kind of came from. And you know, certainly being at some of these resorts and stuff where there is a ton of, you know, a ton of opportunities to party and drink. I think it was, they felt like it was a necessary thing and, and so forth. So, well, in the eighties in America, I mean, cocaine was everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Teaching pros. Um, thankfully I grew up where jockocracy is, uh, how's it, how'd it go? Um, this prep school I went to, I wish I was a four floor rowdy. And everyone would be afraid of me from a commercial Oscar, was it Oscar the hot dog, Oscar Weiner? Meyer Weiner, there you go. With, But there's no drinking. But then also, I think it may have been Peter's second book. It was Tennis for Life. And then it was, the second book was on being a vegetarian, I think. Yeah, yeah. Peter, uh, Peter certainly uh, felt like vegetarianism was the, the healthiest way and and shared it with everybody. I mean, it was never forced or anything like that, you know, but yeah, he, he was pretty passionate about that and felt like it was the, I think the ethical way to live life and the, the healthier way. So. Oh, I remember being a nervous young guy in my twenties and I'm hosting Peter Burwash and it's like, and it was with Mike Carter who he had on as a guest, fun, fun guy. And, you know, we just had so much respect. I mean, Peter Burwash is coming to hang out with us and, <laughs> and uh, like, where are we going to take this guy to eat? And, um, it would, we took him to Dairy Queen the first day and it was, I mean, he had a milkshake both times. It's like, okay, (laughs) there's no, there's no, there's no red meat in that, in that milkshake. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, but his energy level, um, nonstop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was nonstop when I, I think, um, one of my, the funniest memories I have is, uh, picking up Peter at the USPTA conference to take him to the, the, uh, airport. I think he was flying to India or something. And, um, <laughs> I mean, we're in the middle of Manhattan, me and, uh, my colleague, Mike Manzella, and we're lost. We can't get up, find our way to get out of the city. And he, we're looking at it. Our GPS stopped working because the buildings were too tall and we're trying to navigate and Peter's in the back just saying, well, what's your next question for me? It just never stopped. He was always, you know, trying to connect and, you know, wanting to kind of educate us and get us a little sharper and stuff like that. So, yeah. And also too, around hotel executives. Yeah. You know, it's not just <laughs> tennis pros among tennis pros. Yeah. With, um, yeah, with Peter, for me, um, like the forehand, he was, you know, he was ahead of his time. He, he figured out early on that people shouldn't have a continental grip on the forehand. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, he, the way he taught the left hand was you don't have to be attached to a grip. You just need to find the right racket angle. So he would always encourage us to kind of, you know, move the racket in the hand with the left hand and let, let the grip, you know, be what it will be as long as the racket angle feels, you know, right. And it's, it, you know, makes sense for where it's pointing. Yeah. It's kind of more of how he, he kind of taught it. 
No, I always remember I went to a Vic Braden course first time and six months later, you were asking me about that just earlier today and go back the second time. And it was just one other guy who had been there the six months before those two of us were repeaters. I mean, there were 70 people easily. So this guy was very aggressive and he, next thing he's just out there in front, Vic's giving him a lesson and he had a open racket face on the backhand, didn't have a backhand grip, which Braden, the person taught on the right side of number one, Braden, the resource, when he'd be on, on ESPN, grip on one, but he really taught it on the right side of one. But I remember raising my hand and I said, well, why aren't you telling him to change his grip? Yeah. And Vic goes, I'm not a toad. He was here six months ago. I told him <laughs> six months ago to change his grip, but he hasn't done it. Yeah. And, you know, that's where Vic was way better than me is I would have said, hey, <laughs> uh, that, that's a, you know, for me, Braden, Steve, we should have, I was always flattered, we should have worked together. Of course, he would say we should have been teaching ISTPs and ESTPs on the brain typing. And I said, Vic, we should have worked together training coaches, and you go forward with a flashlight, and I go backwards taking a club and hitting people over their head. Did you get that? <laughs> Do you understand? With But, yeah, you know, Peter, I remember, I'm just thinking, if someone had taught me that earlier, mm-hmm. the close the racket phase with um how many years were you with pbi um almost 10 so wow so i worked at a few sites that we did the training in in georgia and then out in naples and i was at the lake george club in new york um and then um the last place i was at for a while was uh silverado resort and spa in napa so few different sites and got to do some fun little side trips out to Austria and taught a little bit in Hawaii and things like that. But yeah, it was great. I had a pretty small short list compared to a lot of the pros in the company. Oh, the so. different places, different continents with, you know, we can go back and catch up and okay, what did you do post PBI? But with PBI was sold. Why don't you talk to you a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't know a ton, but as I think it's been in the last year or so, True now owns PBI, and I think True owns uh, Drysdale now and PBI, so I think they've kind of got their different brands. And, um, you know, Renee Zondog's been the acting president for probably maybe going on 10 years. It might be a little bit less than that, but so he's still there, and, you know, uh, Renee was very close with Peter, and you know, Peter definitely kind of had had mentored him to kind of to take over the company, you know, and so. And where's, um, where's Renee from? Oh, I'm trying to think of his last name is Zondog. So <laughs> do it that yeah. way you will, but, uh, he's over there and, uh, I want to say he's Dutch, but, um, but he was in Dubai for a long time with PBI. And you're, you're saying that he was very good friends with Federer. Yeah, it was kind of cool. He, he doesn't like to share that, but yeah, he's, uh Oh, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Renee. Uh, but anyways, he, he's, he's a very humble guy. And so he doesn't like to draw attention, but yeah, he was in Dubai for years and Federer would train there. And, um, so yeah, I think they've, they've struck up quite a friendship. Yeah. We're certainly on the outskirts, but, uh, the CEO of Troon was here this summer with his daughter mm-hmm. and she was sent by somebody that we've influenced who's coaching the college tennis team. And I know that it's not only PBI, but it's also they bought Drysdale. They're still under operating under the name Drysdale. Um, I th- I believe so. If, yeah. So do the, the the hotels that have PBI is it still a PBI name? Is a PBI? Yeah. Yeah. If you go on their web, PBI's website, they've still got their list of properties. So I think they're using them for different types of branding for depending on the property. Um, I would imagine so. Hmm. 
So post PBI, what did you do? Well, I kind of had an injury that would, that lingered for a couple of years in, in my right elbow. And I pitched to throw in a lot of baseballs. And so kind of ended up having Tommy John surgery and I just took me a long time to recover and I didn't think I was going to. So I ended up in Utah where I had some family and, um, and slowly after about a year or so after I moved out there, my arm just healed. And so one kid found out I used to teach tennis and then that turned into two. And now it's about 85 kids of, that I just run a private junior program. And so I've been doing that for the, about the last three and a half, four years out in Utah. So, and you're working on a building a tennis facility. Yeah, that's right. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So we're myself and a couple partners, um, parents of kids that I've coached. Um, we're working on building a five court, uh, indoor facility, trying to put a couple clay courts in as well. We got a hold of a German red clay manufacturer. That, uh, they're called red clay pro and they do a, they do a, a special kind of clay. It's a special type of base. If you think of, um, the tracks that they're putting out, those rubberized tracks they are actually able to take the clay base and, um, put a, um, some sort of chemical on it and it sets the base and the base can't be dug into or moved. So you don't have yeah, to water I've, it. I've just read about it. I've never, yeah. I, don't, I don't little or nothing about it. So anyway, so we're going to, we're going to attempt to put a couple clay courts out there, which is a little unusual for Utah. And yeah, we're going to, but, but clay courts, so you don't really have to hydrate. Yeah, there's no watering yeah. uh, in terms of soaking them. You do a little bit of just a light mist when you want to play, but there's no rolling, no raking. Um, yeah, so we're going to give those a go. And, and that's going to be indoors? No, the clay courts will be outdoors, but the hard courts are going to be indoors. So. And what about losing the topping with wind? Would that be really costly? Well, that's what we're going to find out a little bit. We did. We went to out. There's a one of these courts is at a private home in Vegas. So, which they've got pretty similar wind patterns to what we've we've kind of seen in Utah. And they did pretty well their first year in terms of not breaking the bank for topping and so forth. So, it's going to be an experience, uh, experiment and figuring this out as we go. Back to Peter, he'd be a guy to ask. Uh, what was it like to play on cow dung? I mean, <laughs> tennis courts are made out of so many different surfaces. I know in Germany, you know, the Germans are way ahead of the curve when it comes down to advanced technology. But yeah, I remember being in many indoor halls where they had the rubberized. Yes. You felt it was played like clay. Mm-hmm. Um, not not the, by any means. I don't think anybody's done a, a great job with the artificial grass, mm-hmm. but the, the artificial clays. I mean, I found it to be very playable. But yeah, if it's just regular clay indoors, it just becomes a mess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just juniors, you don't work with adults. Um, I work with some of the parents of the juniors. Um, yeah, it's going to be we're going to have to kind of build that program up, which is what I did under with PBI. I was ninety five percent all adult programming and that aspect. So that certainly will be part of kind of growing this the whole operation. Well, my comment would be uh, hats off to country club pros, club pros who are running league teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, but no, I, I like the idea for an adult to train like a junior. Yeah. I've heard you say that before and that sounds more and more attractive to, to just putting everybody in, in the same program. Let them. Yeah. It's interesting. Like say in Japan, you know, adults come on a court and they jog and stretch and, mm-hmm. you know, they do the calisthenics and, I one time was doing an adult clinic and kind of forgot for a second. Said, "All right, everybody, run a couple laps." And everybody just started staring at me. I go, "Oh, okay. <laughs> Adults don't stretch." Yeah. 
with uh, timeline and costs and yeah, we're we're hoping to get those lower, <laughs> um, but we're hoping for next winter. That's that's our goal. And right now, with how things are with the the economy and stuff, we got to be smart. But yeah, the goal is still to try to hit um, next winter. So I've heard Vandermeer say, and I was only in that position one time. All my years in tennis is where you own your own courts. Mm-hmm. A lot of positives in owning your own courts. Yeah, absolutely. But with that, you'll have a different type of overhead. Yes. Yes. An indoor overhead. So, um, heating, lighting space. Um, and, and in Utah, how about the, uh, AC bill? Won't be, won't be that bad. I mean, is there, it, well, apparently I don't know that many of the clubs actually AC, um, indoors in Utah, if the paneling and things that they're supposed to be using these days is supposed to keep it pretty cool. Um, Oh, that was my next question. Is it, yeah. is there anything very unique like the, you know, where you, um, can open it and close it on the sides? Yeah, it's kind of, we're in a, um, we're in a valley that's, that's pretty rural in terms of its look. They, they kind of try to keep that. So it'll have a little bit of a, you know, bucolic kind of farm type of a look, but with the roll ups on the sides and kind of things where, where we're at. So, and you have land for expansion. We got a little bit. We can add a couple of courts. So yeah, not too much though. We're, we're, it was, it was tough to find land <laughs> and U- Utah's booming is so it's gotten tougher and tougher to, to find land where people still are, you know, where people are. So, and the zoning commercial zoned. And- yeah, we went through a, we got a deal through the city. So they're going to let us, um, have a special permit to, to do athletics in this area. Most places, the zoning laws are a little bit lighter for camps. You know, this is what you could do in the summer. Yeah. But you can't necessarily do it year round. But mm-hmm. I, I do think that because of the inner mountain mm-hmm. and, and tennis kids, knowing tennis kids, everybody's, you know, you go to tournaments in the inner mountain. I mean, from where is it? Las Vegas, to, Vegas. to Denver, yeah. to Salt Lake. I mean, everything's so far away. But it'd be, it would be nice if you could have, and I've seen that, the bunkhouse, the, the place in the, your yeah. facility where you could easily sleep kids. But you know, that's one thing too, is that um, you can just get an air mattress and a sleeping bag. Yeah. Out on the courts. Yeah. And it's just <laughs> it's the best way to supervise players. The girls go to the right, boys go to the left. Girls got their own locker room. Boys have their own locker yeah. room. People on this podcast heard me say it's, then we say, okay, lights out. People are all, they're all sleeping with their phone. It looks like yeah. it looks like a Christmas tree. Yeah. No, that's, ex- that's exciting. Now tell us about, uh, you're, you connected with us by, um, going through the Peter Burwash podcast. You know, yeah. We dedicated podcast to our, our pillars. Um, and then that led you to, you know, study what, what we've put together. What, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it kind of when, you know, Peter was getting, you know, a little bit in worse health and stuff. I kind of, and just being out of the company for a few years, I was really just, you know, with podcasts these days, I just thought, I wonder if anybody's done anything on Peter, you know, has anybody put together anything on his life. And, and I think the great base was the only podcast, at least on, you know, on the podcast front that really had anything on Peter. And I was shocked to see that it was, you know, more than three hours of, of content and stuff. And when I listened to it, I think it just was clear to me that you knew Peter. And so that, that really impressed me that you were able to capture Peter, you knew Peter. And then when I heard that, you know, you referred to Peter, I think as a pillar, um, 
and that just kind of made me say, well, I need to know more. Who are these other pillars? If this guy gets Peter, he's got to have some understanding, you know, so he's whoever else he would put as a pillar. I heard you refer to Vic as a, as the Christmas tree. Well, I just like decided I needed to spend some time, you know, studying the content and that just kind of rolled from there. Actually, we want to have a podcast. I never was on Nick Baltieri's uh, payroll, but you know, around Nick in so many different ways, he, you know, certainly hired coaches and many stories connected to Nick. Um, we have to get around to doing that. I also would like to, uh, maybe we'll do that this summer is take it, eight days in a row, watch Rocky movies and then have a podcast on Rocky. But for me, actually with Peter Burwash, I didn't really, I didn't even go to the library. You know, I I have his books, Mm -hmm. I have tapes, I have notes. Um, But yeah, that's, that's just how powerful, you know, I just, these podcasts, we would, we need to do a better job. You know, we're amateurs and say, okay. And it's not, Who's the guy, the famous guy, he's got a podcast that we listens to? Joe. Oh, Rogan? Joe Rogan. Yeah. So, yeah, I think Joe Rogan has a little larger support staff for his yeah. podcast than we do. <laughs> and, you know, we're doing this and doing that. It's like, okay, we want to keep this going. And with, uh, with that would be fun to have, uh, a, you know, podcasts on, you know, more in-depth But then also to say, okay, with Peter, and that's this type of thing that these leading organizations that certainly have some funds, maybe they could have some more funds. You know, that's something that we need to do with our great base and nonprofit is raise funds. But wouldn't it be nice to uh, just have, you know, like the old days with encyclopedias, you know, obviously now it would all be online, but to Peter Burwash drills. Yeah. And so then it's not someone, you know, to give people credit like a, a, a great Peter Burwash drill is you can do it on a field. You know, we have it online. I'm in South Africa and I'm doing it um, with a group of South African kids. Mm-hmm. Petrus Kukimori changed how he pronounces his name. So I was with, along with his wife, I'm their guest doing a camp in South Africa. So you get all these kids sitting in a circle and Jeff Coatsier was amazing at it, this young player who's had a, had a very successful playing career. Now he's mm-hmm. doing very well coaching and you put one person in the middle mm-hmm. and then say, put six people around that person. You can, you can do it on a tennis court, but I remember training the women at the university of Illinois labor day camp. And my job for the coach at that time was to come in and, okay, let's set the season straight. And my job was at, Okay, we do it on a field, and every girl, their warm up was going to have grass stains and mud stains, and they were going to get dirty, and it would be. But the person in the middle had to actually sit down, and you know, they're they're actually they just have to be like Peter was as a player, very acrobatic, mm-hmm. and it was just a fun drill. So to get a visual on that, person's in the center, and you just initially they have to volley in order around the people the outside, mm-hmm. and then people on the outside say, okay, you got to do a knee touch volley on both sides until it gets, comes back around you. And then you get the person in the middle, they actually have to hit the volley and fall down in their fanny and keep the ball going. <laughs> and, you know, there's just, just so, so many things. But coming back to, um, but you've gone through the courses and, yeah. you know, why don't you touch upon that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I just started off listening to the podcast and just kind of started going through the pillars and, um 
You know, I think for me, coming out of PBI, PBI, I think simplified my game and a lot of the thoughts of, you know, just how to teach. And, and I gained a lot from that. And, you know, leaving PBI, I think you're always, you know, I still love teaching, obviously, and kind of had started teaching juniors. And I just was, you know, getting into a little bit more of a develop junior development type player that I hadn't worked with a lot in PBI. So I, you know, trying to kind of search and find what, okay, what is the best information out there? And, you know, and I think when I came across the great base, it just really closed a, a lot of gaps in what I would say that the tennis math, you know, the Braden math was just so when I heard kind of, you know, 19.6 degrees and the dimensions of the court, you know, you know, no unique opinion. I think when I heard all that stuff, it just, it, it in some ways it went back to Peter because it was simple and it made so much logical sense, you know, and for me, it just really helped once again, help my own game, which was the experience I had when I was in PBI, my game got better. The Braden information made, made my own game better. And then if it's going to make my game better, I know it's going to translate to the kids cause I felt it, you know? And so, yeah, the, the great bases just really, I think closed a lot of questions or, you know, cleared up a lot a lot of teaching, um, maybe misconceptions and, and things like that. And I think the other thing of the way I think of the great base and, and Braden really is just, it's such a simple blueprint, but once you see the blueprint, everything really becomes, you know, simple. Like there's just, a, you don't look at slow-mo video again and go after the wrong thing. So to say, you know, that'd be an example. Here's a Peter Burwash. The art is where you start. Yes. That's still, and you'll be able to recognize a primary flaw. Yep. And that is something that where you told me today, something I heard before, but I haven't heard in a long time. Why don't you say that about, I think it was one of the PBI pros about people hitting in the alley. Oh yeah. It's a John, John Weston quote. I don't know where he got it from, but it, yeah, the, he would always say the alley's fool's gold. Ladies don't cover the alley. It's fool's gold. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great line. And that, that's what people need to do is have, have all those buzzwords and phrases where you just be, can explain your sport better mm -hmm. because we were watching mixed four teenagers play mixed doubles mm -hmm. and they're always trying to go down the line. Yeah. You know, you make the person look like a donut, you know, go, <laughs> go forward. Excuse me. Uh, Peter used to say, uh, fast feet and slow racket. Mm -hmm. You know, you yeah. certainly would talk about control and then people would just hear a tidbit and go, no, he's all wrong. It's all racket and speed. Yeah. Oh, no, no, you got to be aggressive. But to get people to be able to rally. Yep. Uh, Peter, I thought this was great. I think it comes from his hockey background where when you're warming up with someone, he'd be able to hit the ground stroke on their forehand volley and be able to hit the ground stroke on their backhand volley. Mm -hmm. Give yourself a target. And you know, then also the, the two-shot passing. I mean, he, he really, he played the game. He understood the game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tennis for life had so many good concepts and, and yeah. things. With, with Peter, the, um, the pros, what about the differences from one pro to the next? I mean, did you, were you, um, you know, being original, did people go in and kind of be, um, you know, say for example, I used to like to train pros where make them a floater. You know, mm -hmm. so they, if he has a, a staff, a facility, I should say, that requires a multiple number of pros, mm -hmm. 
would you be, would, you were trained to do everything. It wasn't like you were going to be one dimensional and you just taught juniors and yeah, no, we were trying to teach everything. It, it turned into a lot of adult teaching, but some of our sites had huge junior programs and they really were player development and, and so forth. But yeah, I mean, Peter really stressed that somebody should be able to take, you know, a, a lesson in Dubai and then they should be able you know, to go to Lake George and, and really not hear a different language. Like it should be, you know, similar in, the, in some continuity between the pros. And um, they had a database where we entered in all the students' names and you would take notes on your lessons. And then, you know, the next pro could pull, if they went to a different site, PBI site on vacation, you'd pull them up and try to have an idea of what they were working on or, you know, kind of. Talk a little bit about time frame. So, um, what you're doing now is you have long-term students. You have 85 juniors, correct? Mm-hmm. So at a hotel, you're going to have yeah. somebody for short weekend, long weekend, yeah, a week. Uh, most. A week. Yeah. yeah, I was just, I think that's where Peter's kind of the teaching concepts. When you go into Braden, it's, you know, it's a little, maybe a little bit more in-depth in some ways in long-term. But I think Peter, um, yeah, with a lot of hotel guests, it was what, you know, what can you accomplish in a few hours? You know, always starting off the lesson with, you know, getting, you know, feedback from the student and then hitting. And before you give any, you want to go out and watch the student hit before you give any feedback, you don't want to influence them or anything. And then, you know, you'd bring it in and, and kind of go through some progressions. He was, they were big on progressions, So always finding a, a simple way to progress, to get to the back of the court, hopefully by the end of the lesson and, and ending on a high, you know, fun, you know, fitness knowledge was kind of the three things. And, and, you know, some hotel guests, you're just going to play sets and that's all they want to do. And it just varied from each guest, how serious of a student they were. And it was fun because it was a lot of different people coming in and a lot of chances to practice on different people and just see different, you know, strokes. Uh, did you ever had a chance to listen to Peter as a commentator on TV? Uh, one annual meeting they had, uh, Jeff Hankelman, um, who's still with PBI. Um, he, he had been able to record some of his um, is it Canadian broadcasting or t- Toronto broadcasting. And, yeah, so I'd, I've heard a little bit of it, but um, haven't been able to find much. You know, we used to always call the threes a tennis lesson, and you have to camouflage one of the three. Education, which, okay, mm-hmm. you've got to be able to hide the lesson. You know, Peter would say, okay, he had a great line, well, the personality of the pro. Mm-hmm. The, person, the pro has to make this work. Yeah. Because obviously teaching te- technique is kind of like watching paint dry. I mean, yeah. embrace the boredom. So it's education, it's exercise, and you say enjoyment or entertainment. Yeah. But I believe Peter had three E's where um, one was uh, obviously emergency, mm-hmm. one was execution, mm-hmm. and then one was exploitation. Yeah. But I remember TSN, he would do the Canadian Open, I remember talking to him um, at the Canadian Open, but uh, Carlene Bassett, who I got to know because she had an academy, mm-hmm. she owned the academy. I and Dave Anderson, we talked about quite a bit. We worked there, but I remember him saying about exploitation and what we used to say years ago. People would play, and the way they would play, we would say that doesn't work in the 18th. That mm-hmm. when they get older, that won't work. Yeah. Where they just play one-dimensional tennis. Yeah. And, but I remember, uh, you know, Peter saying, well, they don't have the skills to exploit the player because they won't go forward. Yeah. Yeah, he was huge on coming forward and that, you mean, 
um, constantly getting us to stress, you know, um, serving volley tennis. So he was always, you know, just pushing forward on the court. Yeah. No, I thought he was an excellent commentator, but got pushed out. Perhaps yeah. I, I shouldn't say that, but I'm going to guess that he got pushed out. I mean, that he, he loved doing it. He was great at it. Mm-hmm. And then, well, who else is doing it? I mean, Braden, obviously, I think too many times we come across as hero worship and people think they were one-dimensional and it's just pro-Braden. But Vic actually got pushed out too. Huh. And, you know, I think actually with Vic, um, I just don't think it was managed well or to bring science into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or it could, you know, you look back and go, hey, this, why don't we have this segment where it's just the facts, Jack? Mm-hmm. And to... You know, to take time and space away from someone, if someone's yeah. got a hole in their game, how can you attack it from more than just one part of the court? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the dimensions of the court, I mean, like, just such a powerful tool. I can't, can't stop coming back to it. <laughs> well, I think, Peter, with the Bryan brothers, I think, I, you said you saw them at an exhibition just, just yesterday? Yeah, playing the Jensen brothers. Well, the Jensen brothers as well. There's some energy. There's some entertainers. Yeah. But that's what Peter was. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he could entertain. But I just think these tennis teachers from days gone by is that we need to save the lost arts. Yeah. You know, Peter Burwash, uh, for me, can getting four players to play doubles in a, in a service box. Listeners, mm-hmm. you got to try that. <laughs> can't hit the ball hard. And you can't poach on the first ball. Mm-hmm. You serve. Return has to go by the opponent at the net. So you have to wait one, two, three, then play it out. Yep. And then you're so close, you have to really start to develop really good hands. Uh, Peter was certainly someone who uh, the pitfalls, uh, when that ball comes right at you, mm-hmm. that you're going to play a backhand volley, mm-hmm. that you're not going to slide around, play the forehand volley. But with the, with the doubles, Peter was big on one bounce doubles. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Peter was always, every drill I think he could get people into, come to the net, he was always pushing pushing that on us to work with people to develop the volley and, and things like that. Um, oh, with pushing, let me say this, is good, this is a good time to say this, is that Peter in doubles, what he would do oh, is yeah. stand behind the server, <laughs> put their racket in their back, and push them to the net yeah. like, like it was a pitchfork. Yeah, I can always remember Peter, you know, um, you know, whether it was the volley, if the racket face was too open, he'd be standing by them and he'd catch the racket, you know, real dynamically in front of the demo. I think the thing that I always appreciated about Peter's teaching, at least from our annual meeting perspective, was he always brought out, you know, 3-0 ladies, 3-5 ladies, 4-0 men, 3-5 men. We just, what, I think I got soured on some of the tennis um, conferences because it was consistently always high performance being demoed on for a coach to bring out high performance kids. And he was always willing to bring out just very regular level players, you know, and, and show us how he would approach and work on their forehand, what he's the flaw he's seen and how he's going to attack it. And, you know, you just got, he just gained a ton of, I think, respect in all of the pros eyes because he was never putting himself in the, the teaching situation to make himself look great or make it easy on himself. He was, going to do exactly what he was, you know, asking us to do. So, well, I think also too, is that he was, it wasn't going to be boring. He, yeah. like if he, he was going to get people to rally. Yeah. And they're not, and you know, they're not going to, players are not going to be perfect. Here, here's a burwash point to make a point. 
is tossing the ball too far over your head. Mm-hmm. And I can remember uh, there's a person who's a very good player. She would say past tense, present, you can guess, is he's on the, the board of governors of the USTA. And my youngest son might have been 11, young guy. And I go, all right, this is what we're going to do. And I said, all right, Connor, stand in the service box and see if you catch this player's serve off the bounce. <laughs> and, you know, that's another thing, too, is Peter is huge on the contact point. Yeah. Just huge on the contact. Where are you hitting the ball? Mm-hmm. And then when you rally to breathe out, but be able to say where you're hitting the ball. Yep. You know, are you, um, one, obviously one word was early, one word was late. Yeah. I'd have to stop and rack my brain, but yeah. the three of them. Yeah. How, how, are you hitting the ball when you're rallying? And this would be a PBI drill. It's so basic, but um, waste, it could be medium, low, medium, high. Yeah. So many kids back up and they don't know. I mean, a vast majority of juniors, they're hitting the ball. You know, you, you watch yeah. us do a video today and the kid's hitting the ball. That forehand side, he's backing up. He's running everywhere. He hit a mm-hmm. forehand and the ball every, every time. Yeah. Is it shoulder level when he's hitting it? Yeah. And it's like, where are you going? What are you doing? And but be able to just crawl, to be able to have a bag of tricks where you can correct that problem so many different ways. Yeah, I think for he always had the five dimensions of the you know of the strokes as well, which you know power, spin, speed, direction, depth. And so, you know, then you throw in concepts like defense, neutral, and offense. It was like, okay, you're going to play nothing but underspin, but you're going to, and you're going to call out, you know, whether you're in defense, neutral, or offense. And then, you know, always looking as your, your shot selection matching what you're calling out. You're calling defense, but your swing speed just, you know, went through the roof. Um, so he, there was a lot of good, I think, um, maybe frameworks or concepts to kind of build and always be able to go and teach off of, you know, if you pick out those five things, you can then find variations within those things you can just kind of keep building off of. And that was really good. Just easy Uh, ways to teach. Now it's since the eighties, I mean, it's 40 some years. So we had what we call the seven concepts. Mm -hmm. We could make it eight, we could make it 77, but we've seven, we call the emotional anchors. Mm Mm-hmm. And we, we know we've had some players add to it and they publish it and, it's, and that's fine. I mean, I can name a few people that, that, you know, I think they could be slapped on the wrist for loyalty. They work for Peter and you read their bio and it's like, well, how did you end up speaking three languages? How did you end up traveling to so yeah. many countries? It should say somewhere in your bio that you work for PBI. Mm-hmm. But the, the, uh, the three zones of the court, from red zone, yellow, yellow green. zone, green zone, but in the back of the court, that's we when we use DNO, mm-hmm. that comes way back from those notebooks from Camp Manitowabi. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, I mean, you saw it today, watching a young kid play, and it was over and over and over again. Yeah, he's in the he's moving back to the defensive area, of the red zone, to hit a forehand. As he moved back, as he moves back, then the ball bounces up higher. Yep, and say okay. Uh, you can't back up now. You have to stay inside, you know, over here. And then, okay, create a game to that. And then also create peer pressure. Mm-hmm. We're going to create teams and, you know, anytime, anytime. So that's, that's how Peter's mind would work. I mean, and I think fast thinker, think on your feet. And he used to challenge, as we said, people think on their feet. So mm-hmm. you have four courts playing and they're teams and you blow the whistle 
Anytime a kid runs around there backhand in the neutral or defensive area of the red zone, you blow the whistle yeah. and the person on your, everybody on your team right there, Johnny on the spot, you lose the point where the whistle blew and then you lose one more point. Yeah. And it's like, you know, how, how can we get these people to change? Yeah. You know, how, how can we make it work? Yeah. Well, as you said today, it was, it's one thing if you're, you know, top 10 in the world and you, your game is, you know, pretty set. But if you're developing, you have, you know, no business running around your backhand, you know. And then we talked about Jeff Lewis has that great post on Instagram, which is Djokovic, you know, inside the baseline hitting the backhand and everyone else is outside the doubles alley hitting a forehand, you know, and, you know, the Australian. No, our listeners should listen to Jeff, great communicator. I'm not sure exactly what he has and doesn't, doesn't have on, on YouTube. But that would be just like someone like Ryan Reedy that, you know, he got a chance to spend time one-on-one with Vic Braden mm-hmm. and obviously loves Vic Braden, admires Vic Braden. But someone like Jeff, just like Andy Fitzell, who did a great job getting us going with his podcast, um, I was the yap-yap guy. In fact, that's something I don't really like about these podcasts. People we get positive <laughs> feedback, so I guess I'm going to just keep going like this. That... Andy had just worked for one of the pillars, mm-hmm. but he spent so much time around. And he, but the thing about Andy is that he knows what comes from Braden. Yeah. And then has the intellectual curiosity. Well, where did that come from? Where did that come from? And it's not like we can pinpoint everything and there's a big overlap. Yeah. But with, uh, with Jeff, for sure. Um, he spent so much time with us is that he, he's teaching Peter Burwash concepts. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he would, he just, just is because yeah. If you spent that much time with us, um, but it's a great, why don't you explain the graphic and how he does that? Um, yeah, just it's Djokovic. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a funny picture of Djokovic. It's a little stick figure <laughs> drawn and it just says Djokovic and he's inside the baseline, you know, and he's hitting the backhand and then there's this other stick figure way off the court. It might say everyone else. And you know, they're obviously hitting a forehand, but, you know, they're five feet outside the baseline and, and, uh, you know, the point's pretty obvious. So it's, you know, and I think he says at the bottom, I hate the inside out or I hate running around the backhand or something like that, or the, the inside out forehand's overrated. I don't know what he says exactly, but it's just, no, no, captures it, the point. Yeah. The inside out forehand, we can talk about that, but here's a burwash drill that I don't do anymore. It's too bad is Peter would say, okay, we're going to play, and all you can do is hit a forehand. Yeah. You know, get away from it, give yourself space. And, you know, Peter was clever enough to say, okay, like Braden didn't like people hitting forehands across the baseline going this way. Mm-hmm. Is Vic said, well, if you're going to do at least hit forehands going the other way, so you learn to get away from the ball. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have a player that you watch today. He's quite good. He's knocking on the door to be a 12-0. He could be better. He's got, you know, another year before he's going to go to college. But I heard him say the other day, well, my inside in forehand. And we, that's a language. This part, we don't use that language. Mm-hmm. And um, it's out there. You know, inside out used to be a technical term, mm-hmm. which means to swing from close to away. You know, Courier was number one in the world. I mean, that's obviously big time. And at one time, his company, maybe it still is, is named Inside Out. Mm-hmm. And everybody's hitting an inside out forehand. And it's almost like they're waving their arms, go, I don't come to the net. Yeah. And they're going for the $100 shot from the 10 cent position. But are our, our, the players we work with, I think 99% for sure, they don't understand that we teach the 
DNO, the Burwash concept of getting inside the court to mm-hmm. run around your back end. That's another option. Yeah. Um, I watched one of our players played a great match the other day. He lost first set six love, but he's really competitive. He's a really competitive first set. He lost six love. <laughs> you know, people get confused by that. Yeah. And he wins the next set. And then unfortunately flip a coin, they have to play the match tiebreaker. But, um, is step up into the court. And when we say that, it doesn't mean to hit off your front foot. You know, I, we spent a lot of time with a young coach, Matt Clore, we talk about quite often. You know, I'm sure that comes from his father. Step up into the court is that doesn't mean attack the net. Yeah. That doesn't mean that um, you're going to uh, hit off your front foot. What it means is, is you, your opponent moves back. And you just sense, you just know, based on your previous shot and their movement, recognition skills. That's a Burwash term, Mm -hmm. recognition skills. I I mean, I'll say that over and over again, your reading skills. But when they back up that you know that you can move just inside the baseline, you don't have to run around it. You're just hitting the ball inside the baseline. And because you got them to move back, the ball's going to bounce up high. It's going to be above their shoulder. You know, they may end up in a deep shot. You might not be as confident you know, especially a young 15-year-old player, take the ball out of the air, but you're going to step in and play the ball on the rise. Yeah. And that's, you know, the Peter Burwash, the clapping of the hands, bounce hit, you know, you take a Gall- Galloway's tip. Yeah. And, you know, that's where um, we're, we're all connected when it comes to communication. Yeah. And that's what's so great about the Super Bowl being played yesterday, and everybody is saying so many great things about Andy Reid. And uh, Bill Walsh, um, I heard that 75% of the head coaches, their tennis, tr- their, not their tennis tree, their football tree, tree yeah. coaching tree can be traced back to Walsh. Hmm. Yeah. I've, I've heard that. You know, then they, they interview Saban and the quarterback for the Eagles hurt, uh, Kalen hurts. Um, you know, he was a superstar for Alabama. Then he, you know, he became the number two, he loves yeah. Alabama, became the number two and they sent him to Oklahoma. Yeah. Or he, he transferred to Oklahoma. Yeah. And but the, the football community, you know, the, the studying of film. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, people that listen to our podcast heard it over and over again. It's law in American football, high yeah. school. You send us your film, we'll send you our film. Yep. Um, Bum Phillips said about Don Shula, um, he'll take yours, and, and he did it with a country fight accent, he'll take his and beat yours. And then he could take yours and beat his <laughs> with, but that's one thing people, and um, I think there's too much self-promotion in tennis. I don't think many people are proud of their coaching tree. Like where, yeah. you know, where are you studying? Where, you know, where are you, where are you trained? And, uh, but the football community, yeah. they learn so much from each other. Mm-hmm. And um, with, uh, yeah. But Peter, you just think about how many different hats he wore, but mm-hmm. you know, he, you know, it wasn't, you know, he, he certainly would say, don't be a one dimensional player, but um, he certainly challenged himself in so many areas of tennis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, could be the briefcase pro, but he could be in the, he put his time in the trenches and you could just see that from the, when he got on court with people that he never let himself get disconnected from, from being on the court. So yeah, no, I've I've told many people that that I've trained that have co- they're now coaching college tennis. Mm-hmm. Never ever stop teaching beginners. Yeah, never ever stop teaching beginners. Um, 
Yeah, I know some highly acclaimed coaches that have been involved in different federations and such, and they don't they don't teach beginners. They refuse yeah. to teach beginners. Yeah. I know some tough coaches that go, no, I I don't I I just can't talk to the little kids. I just can't you know they they, they just can't change gears and lower the volume and yeah. and present tennis in a different manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With uh, just tell us you know. Crystal ball and this business. Uh, what, what, what are you shooting to accomplish in, uh, with your business in Utah? Well, I think you know the goal is to produce, just grow the game. I think and, and produce people that can hit, hit the ball well. I mean, I think that's one one of the fun things about Utah. There's a lot of kids there, and the tennis is popular. I mean, some of these junior highs might have 40 kids on their junior high team. Um, so it's the game is just it's healthy there, but it needs I think it just needs better teaching, and so um, you know and as I think you've said it, and it might be Braden that says it, it's like frustration will set in pretty quickly if you don't have good information, right? And you know, getting better is part of being able to improve is part of the path to, to sticking with playing, and so that's kind of. Um, you know, I think it's been somewhat of your influence on me is just really trying to develop players, no matter the athletic ability. I think we're, oftentimes it's easy to get caught up in, in training the athletes, but I mean, it really is a lot of pride to get anybody, you know, somebody that doesn't have that athletic background to start really, you know, hitting the ball, you know, true topspin off both sides and those kind of things. Yeah. Like today, I mean, we had a little young 10 year old rallying with a seven year old mm-hmm. and, you know, you just watch them and, and they both, I think elegance is a pretty strong word, but that, that's the brain word about Fetter. Yeah. But effortless, efficient, mm-hmm. that they, they can rally a ball back and forth. Yep. And not rushing the competitive process. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, I think so many tennis people are going in circles. Yeah. You know, there, there's, you don't have to go to every tournament. Yeah. You know, we're always telling people, okay, take Hingis, who in junior Wimbledon at 12. Hingis, Martina Hingis, Venus Williams, and Davenport. Mm-hmm. They all became number one. They're all basically the same age, and they all went up the mountain a different way. Yeah. Where Hingis, I mean, so good, so young. You know, John Lofton Diaga, who we worked with short term, a South African played mixed with her three years. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's that line we have is uh, get some popcorn, get a hot dog, go sit in Section F. But Hingis could have served so much better. Yeah. Her story where Gilbert was. You got to learn. You got to throw a football. Well, you got to teach people how to throw the football. Yeah. You got to know how that arm turns out. What you do with that last segment. But then Davenport, who pretty much she did at the USTA and regular high school. But Venus didn't play tournaments after the age of ten. Yeah, I think that's what I took away from the podcast guest a couple couple episodes back with that worked with Rainich. I think it was him that was just saying Curtis. match. Yeah, uh, yeah match Curtis. play. Casey Curtis, match play is what really is important. Select your tournaments here and there, but just get the match play skill down, and then you know the tournaments will take care of themselves when you decide. Yeah, play anybody and everybody. You yeah. you eventually can get some good wins, and um, yeah, the, how long can you do the plank, and how long can you do the iron V, and how many squat throws can you do in a minute, and film yourself doing push ups, and on and on. And it's not a matter of, you know, spending all this money early on, getting on airplanes, renting cars, checking in hotels. Um, I remember Peter saying that the best place to teach tennis is in countries where the kids have not seen pro tennis. Yeah. 
And now there, there is a gentleman who was in a lot of countries where, you know, doing things for the underprivileged and kids that, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, he taught a lot of places where people are learning to play barefoot. Yep. Yeah. They put in a couple of tennis courts in that um, school in India. So they were learning there. Yeah. So, and today with young kids uh, looking at uh, YouTube clips, mm-hmm. but all these podcasts and I appreciate you listening to these podcasts and others were Julian Krinsky. Um, I um, in the, I'm in the 5% who chased 95% of the business. Yeah. Now here in Florida, so many players are just the opposite. They're, they're the not, the pros are ninety five percent of the pros are chasing five percent of the business, mm-hmm. yeah. And there are, a lot of them are looking for people who are, already can hit the ball. Yep. Uh, something we need to say over and over again is throughout our country here in the U.S. is we need to do a push on pre academies. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one thing about an isolated area like Utah. And 100 years ago, I did some things in Utah with the late Tommy Fye and the Utah Tennis Association. It was actually Dave Anderson, Craig Tiley, the three of us saying, oh, this would be a great market, isolated. It's, it's out there. It's, you know, it's, it's not Southern Cal. Uh, like here in Florida, I mean, from South Miami to North Miami Beach is just one huge megatropolis. Mm-hmm. And the consumer's confused. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, that's one thing about Tyler, Texas. Although I can remember uh, Gail Scott, the mom of uh, Julie Scott, who really changed some bad technique and had a, success, a very successful career at, the, at, at Stanford. Didn't really, for any length of period, pursue uh, pro tennis. But I can remember her, the mom, turning down the USTA. I was like, just, no, we're good. Yeah. yeah we, no, this is fine. We just train here. And having respect for people are working with you and you don't have there's it's not like the, the grass is greener on the other side but being in utah um i think of the evolution of tennis in canada richard hernandez who we got on as a guest mm-hmm. a couple of times he did such an outstanding job training tennis training tennis juniors early on but before this wave of recent canadians the canadians had this inferiority complex that they had to leave yeah um, and I think that's something that you find in Utah is that we have to go to Southern Cal. Yeah. They, they can get down there from tournaments, but um, tennis players come from everywhere and too much too soon. Yeah. Um, you know, a kid gets to be, you know, 15, 16 years old. Okay, we can leave. But um, I think also uh, you, you saw us doing a little bit of that today on film and on court is the peer teaching. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, to be in the business of having in, indoor court times, there's, that's one thing is just lowering your overhead by having less pros. Yeah. Uh, increasing your revenue by being able to teach more kids on one court. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in closing, um, let's go touch more a little about Peter. I think it's just great. The verb edify, um, you know, what he did for tennis, you know, it, it needs to not be forgotten. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like that's one of the, having been so, you know, for a period of my life involved with PBI that there's a good portion of the tennis community that, that doesn't know anything about Peter and yeah, it's, they should, because they're really, you know, I think he was, he was a force. He, they taught, you know, PBI, we taught so many people, you know, through the hotels and country clubs that they came through 
And then, you know, I think it's also just Peter was for people in the company. He was, um, you know, some of the guys would, would refer to him, especially when, you know, I think earlier in the company was kind of like a father figure and really tried to like push these people to really develop. So I think he just was in the human, you know, development business as well. So that's a great way to put it. Human development. Well, one thing hats off to you, to me, those coaches and it it was, it wasn't the same four. Mm -hmm. I think of Chris Dyer, Bruce Hasse, John Murray, uh, Joe Denoffer, Dan Obershawn, Sandy Hastings, you know, this is just from the top of my head. Yeah. And, um, you know, what, what they did for us, um, you know, and, and again, it was just a, a weekend seminar, but the, what we would do is we would film it mm-hmm. and then we would relive it. So when they came in and told us, okay, this is how you train someone for an interview. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm dumb, but I'm not stupid <laughs> is we drilled in our lab you know, interviews. Yeah. And then we, we learned Peter Burwash drills in our lab. We practice Peter Burwash drills and that's what has to happen again in American tennis. We need to find a way to mentor young coaches. They can't be at their fingertips. Okay. I've watched a YouTube clip. They make too much money too soon. They're the, the governing body of tennis for, for the longest time it was too politically correct. Um, but the USTA does this where they, they police, I mean, that's too strong a word. I, I don't think that. I think we need to have more police. My father wouldn't let us use the word cop. We, <laughs> we need more officers. But with um, the uh, people who work for the USTA who travel and they watch umpires at the grassroots level, mm-hmm. and they're like, how do you get to go to the US Open? Yeah. Is they have people evaluate the work mm-hmm. of the umpires. USTA, or first of all, they'd have to have their own, like, okay, let's get our, let's get our ducks in a row. And can we agree the tennis court's a rectangle instead of say, well, we all, we have all these parameters. Well, you can teach this and you can teach that. And it's like, come on, kids under the age of say 10. Okay. What's going to be the alphabet of tennis? Are we going to agree that A is A and this is the sound and shape? Can we move on to B? You know, there's too much art involved. You know, okay, it is an art, but it is a science. But come on, let's let's at least get good grips, good balance, good shapes of the swing. And uh, but what I say, hats off to you, is that those those people that came in. I mean, to the T, and I, and I know the people that I trained at the PBI hired quality people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hats off to you for being selected. Thank you. <laughs> with, uh, but um, no, no, it's been great to have you as a guest. Um, Anything you want to sign off with when it comes down to words for tennis, words for great base, but most importantly, words for PBI? Yeah, just, um, you know, I hope, you know, PBI continues and, and just doesn't lose sight of, you know, kind of Peter and kind of the, the feel that it had because it really was a, a great, great organization to be a part of when I was in it. And, you know, the and the bigger, you know, the you know, I really wanted to come out to, to meet you. So I was grateful for you having yeah, me. We've talked many, many times on the phone, but yeah. we just, just met in person. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for putting all of this together and yeah, just, it really has helped me with, you know, my career and just, you know, just appreciate knowing more of the game. Like you said, the tree of where everything comes from. So it's given me a greater appreciation. So I, I thank you. No, no, you're more than welcome. And I love what the energy level. When I just hear people that they're okay. Okay. 
you know, I've read these books now. Yeah. You know, where we've led you to these books and such with, but for us, I think your listeners just need to hear loud and clear is that PBI came before us and the word pillar is very strong. Mm-hmm. Is that um, we, and we, the people that I trained in depth, they went, they went back and just, it should just jog their memory brain. Cause yeah, we practiced, they would, you know, they would come in and run a, a workshop and we would say, okay, you know, we would, we had a course called um, programming mm-hmm. calendar of events and flyers yeah. and the training that the PBI pros gave us for that. And, um, you know, from that, we had part of our lab on a rainy day, people would rotate inside. You know, we had to teach people to string and such. Mm-hmm. People would rotate inside and it was through PBI where I was taught, well, I mean, what did I know about it? Zero is okay. You take a piece of paper and you do a threefold. And we had, um, we had a nice little wing of a, of a lower floor building next to the tennis courts. And we had all, every brochure. We were writing magazine after magazine and getting every brochure. And, and, and people were, you know, I think another thing that we haven't touched upon is, I, again, I would just put the outline together and they, the Peter staff would come in and just nail it, like outstanding. And every kid who went through that just was amazed how powerful those seminars were. Yeah. And one was, you're a new pro, and what are you going to do? You're a new pro. And it's like, I'm going to give every member a free, you know, 15, 20 minute tennis lesson. I'm going to have free a stroke of the day. Mm-hmm. And you're going to give and give and give to get. Yeah. And you're, you're not going to find, well, I'll find one or two students and, you know, I'll just give lessons to this kid. And yeah. it's like, um, and then communication. Yeah. You know, appreciation, communication. Yeah. Yeah. Peter's a Burwash drill. Uh, Burwash, to me, I've drilled people to say this. Um, that's where we would have to really, the memory bank, but all the Peter Burwashisms. One is you come in the world with nothing. Yeah. And you leave the world with nothing and you have to appreciate everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. He had a book called Master the Dash, which is the dash in your tombstone. You know, the two dates in the dash. Master the dash. That's a great one to end on. But Jacob Hanson, thank you, thank you, thank you. Why don't we wave to our yeah. listeners? I know a few people who actually they string rackets <laughs> while they listen to these. I think it's because they want to see my uh, people don't know who Bob Hope is, but I got this big ski slope and uh, <laughs> to look at my beautiful profile. But anyway, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Another, it. another podcast in the books. Yeah. We'll do it again. Give me the high five. Thank you. All right, team. <laughs> Good night. It's almost midnight. You should know that. <laughs>